All right, we are back, and it's time to talk about what Wikipedia describes as the October Surprise Conspiracy Theory. It has been our experience at Radio Parallax that when you look up something political that's kind of a hot potato issue, you're going to have a hard time getting to the bottom of it. It seems that people that want to have a certain viewpoint put forward work overtime to put that viewpoint out there, regardless of whether it's true or not. To start off by quoting from our friend Jefferson Morley. We've had Jeff on the show three times. Very, very good reporter. He manages the excellent JFK Facts website. And Jeff Morley noted a few days ago that the once-ridiculed October surprise deal is now confirmed. Notes Morley, the notion that Ronald Reagan's 1980 presidential campaign forged a secret agreement with the government of Iran to delay the release of American hostages until Reagan won the White House was once dismissed by national publications like Newsweek and the New Republic as a conspiracy theory. Yeah, also Wikipedia, Jeff. Two congressional committees claimed the story was factually baseless. Now, with the revelations of a former Reagan aide, Ben Barnes, published in a front-page story in the New York Times, One Man's Sabotaging Carter's Re-Election, the so-called October Surprise deal has gained acceptance as historical fact. There's a lesson here for the JFK assassination story. Barnes, now 85, told reporter Peter Baker that he and former Texas Governor John Conley visited one Middle Eastern capital after another in the summer of 1980, quote, meeting with a host of regional leaders to deliver a blunt message to be passed to Iran. Don't release the hostages before the election. Mr. Reagan will win and give you a better deal, end quote. At the end of the trip, Barnes said John Conley reported to William J. Casey, the chairman of Reagan's campaign, and later his CIA director, briefing him about the trip in an airport lounge. To quote from the Times, Mr. Barnes said he was certain the point of Mr. Conley's trip was to get a message to the Iranians to hold the hostages until after the election. I'll go to my grave believing that it was the purpose of the trip, he said. It wasn't freelancing because Casey was so interested in hearing as soon as we got back to the United States. Mr. Casey, he added, wanted to know whether, quote, they were going to hold the hostages, unquote. Morley notes this story fleshes out the reporting of the late Robert Perry, editor of Consortium News, who investigated Casey's pre-election dealings for the Washington Report on Middle Eastern Affairs and PBS's Frontline. The term October Surprise was originally used by Reagan's aides. Actually, actually, uh, Jeff, it was originally used by George Herbert Walker Bush to describe its fears that Carter would manipulate the hostage crisis to effect a release just before the election. To thwart any such scenario, Casey met with representatives of Iran in Madrid in the summer of 1980, leading to an agreement that the future Reagan administration would ship arms to Tehran through Israel in exchange for the hostages being held until after the election. Now, we should note that there's, there's a difference here between the October surprise scandal and the Iran-Contra scandal. Morley makes the point, as do many others, you'll see as we talk about this, uh, th- note that the, the initial salvo in this whole Iran-Contra fiasco started with the effort to keep the hostages in Iran until after the election. And talk about political games being played. While we were reaching out to the Iranians to see if we could uh, work out something with the hostages, we were also goading Saddam Hussein to start a war with Iran, which he did. 
Morley notes that the hostages were released on January 21st, 1981. Minutes, minutes after Reagan had taken the oath of office. Within days, what a coincidence, U.S. arms started to flow to Iran via Israel, triggering suspicions that a secret arms for hostage deal had been reached. Morley notes that Gary Sick, a former national security aide to President Jimmy Carter, who charged there had been a covert arrangement in a guest essay for the New York Times and in his 1991 book, October Surprise, claimed vindication. Sick told the Times, Barnes's account really does add significantly to the base level of information on this. Just the fact that he was doing it and debriefed Casey when he got back means a lot. The story goes further than anything that I've thus far seen, he said, so this is really new. In conclusion, Morley notes the implications of the story are profound. Ben Barnes's account is proof positive that the Reagan campaign, if not Reagan himself, plotted to thwart the policies of his sitting president seeking to free Americans held hostage. The Times story shows once again how extra-constitutional conspiracies have shaped the struggle for power in America. It also illuminates how a cover story generated by self-interested actors and repeated by credulous news reporters can deteriorate and collapse under the weight of new evidence. Well said, Mr. Morley. I also want to thank a, a contributor to this program that forwarded to me Greg Palace's comments on this. Actually, he got it to me before Greg himself uh, put something into my mailbox. Noted frequent radio parallax guest Greg Palast on Tuesday, March 21st. This week, a Texas poll, Ben Barnes, confessed that he was personally involved and therefore an eyewitness to high treason. The Ronald Reagan campaign's successful secret deal with the Iranian government to hold 52 Americans hostage so Reagan could defeat Jimmy Carter. Noted Palace, Reagan's skanky deal worked. In 1980, Carter's failure to bring home the hostages destroyed his chances for re-election. Reagan ultimately would repay the favor from Iran's murdercrats with weapons and even for the Ayatollah Khomeini, a birthday cake from Reagan advisor Oliver North. When Barnes was asked why it is he was telling the story now, he said, well, history needs to know that this happened. Of course, it's interesting to note that this revelation apparently came out in a 2015 book about the Reagan campaign. It just got ignored. Thankfully, Barnes repeated what he had to say to a more general audience, in this case, the New York Times. Palace asks, why did Barnes squirrel away the truth for decades? Well, follow the money. It's a money trail that leads to two Bushes who would not have become president if not for Barnes' silence about Iran and Barnes's omerta about another creepy Bush scheme. In 1991, for The Guardian, I discovered that Barnes, in his previous role as the lieutenant governor of Texas, used his political juice to get Congressman George W. Bush's son, W., into the Texas Air National Guard over literally thousands of former qualified applicants. Notes Greg, little Bush scored 25 out of 100 on the test, just one point above too dumb to fly. And so it was W, dodged the draft and Vietnam. Barnes hid the truth despite pleas from Texas Governor Ann Richards, who in 1994 lost a squeaker of an election to George W. Bush. In Austin, Texas, I received unshakable evidence that Barnes was the fixer who got Congressman Bush's son out of the Vietnam draft. This while Bush Sr. was voting to send other men's sons to Vietnam. What did Barnes get for his burial of Reagan's deal with Iran and Bush Jr.'s draft dodging? Well, $23 million do it. In 1990, I was investigating a company, GTEC, which ran both the British and Texas lotteries. 
Texas had disqualified GTEC from operating the state lottery based on strong evidence of corruption. But oddly, the new governor of Texas, George W. Bush, fired the lottery director who banned GTEC. Then Bush's new lottery commissioner gave GTEC back its multi-billion dollar contract, no bidding. Notably, Bush's firing of the state's lottery director came two days after a meeting with GTEC's lobbyist, Ben Barnes. Barnes's fee from GTEC? $23 million. Said Palace, secretly conspiring on the foreign power to keep Americans imprisoned, secretly negotiating with and providing weapons to a foreign enemy is kind of the definition of treason. And so would a cover-up for cash. He adds, just a word about creeps, cowards, and con men who call themselves journalists. Let's start with a trivia question. Who's Dan Rather? Well, he's a former TV star and one-time reporter who took my story of Bush's draft dodging, stuck it on 60 Minutes, and in violation of any sense of ethics and decency, exposed a whistleblower. Texas Air Guard Colonel Bill Burkett, a man of inestimable courage and integrity. Rather's exposure ruined Burkett. No Texan would send him feed. His cattle were dying. He lost his ranch. Dan Rather got fired by CBS for getting the network into hot water with the Bush White House. Then, by his own admission, Rather agreed to backtrack on the story of Bush, the draft dodger, in return for a promise of a return to the CBS airwaves. CBS screwed Rather, but that often happens to feckless recreants. Said Palace, neither I nor the BBC nor The Guardian retracted a single word of our story of W, the draft dodger, nor the tale of the $23 million questionable payment. I do want to insert at this point that when Dan Rather produced the documents that showed how W had skipped out, he actually transferred from the Texas National Air National Guard to Alabama and then didn't show. He disappeared. He went AWOL on his National Guard duty. There was some correspondence going back and forth about his bad behavior. But wouldn't you know it, the ones that Dan Rather produced were shown immediately by Republican operatives to have been produced after the time period. In other words, there may have been real documents, and there certainly had to have been real documents related to the case, but they were substituted by phony documents, which were easily exposed and embarrassing Dan Rather and CBS. Anyway, Palace closes by saying, there are zeros and there are heroes. The story of Reagan and his October surprise was first busted open by Robert Perry, who also uncovered the Iran-Contra scandal. Instead of getting a Pulitzer, Perry's career was destroyed. For uncovering too many uncomfortable truths, he was bounced from the Associated Press, Newsweek, Bloomberg, and The Nation. Perry died in 2018 in journalistic exile. Well, I would, I would say he was running consortium news and he was getting heard, and we had him on this program. So it is, I'd like to turn the clock back to November of 2004. We were at that point covering the scandalous story of how it was Gary Webb who revisited the whole Iran-Contra story and added a new dimension to it, that of drug dealing, using cocaine money to help buy arms to get shipped to the Contra army fighting the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. Well, to make a very long story short, Gary Webb, who also should have gotten a Pulitzer Prize for his work, had to face a story that was suppressed. It turns out that the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times, to their great discredit, and the Washington Post, to their great discredit, put together groups of journalists who were dedicated to discrediting the story, not expanding the story, not fact-checking the story, not investigating the story further, but no, discrediting what Webb up to that point had published. 
A despondent Webb later took his own life, seeing that he is, his career had been ruined. There's a very good movie about this, by the way, titled Killing the Messenger with the actor Jeremy Renner. If you haven't seen it, dear listener, I, I highly recommend it. But I don't, want to get, I don't want to go off on that tangent, except to note that we realize that Robert Perry was a guy we should talk to. He was on it when it came to this whole matter of Iran-Contra and the October surprise. Here's what he had to say about this in show number 126. You know, there's been this issue for quite a while, too, another point in dispute of whether or not the Republicans, in, in their effort to reclaim the White House in 1980, uh, undercut uh, President Carter's negotiations with Iran. Uh, Carter was trying to get the release of 52 American hostages who had been seized, and he was struggling with that those negotiations. Uh, and there have been a number of allegations now, really, from a couple dozen individuals uh, from Europe, from from uh, from Iran, from Israel, and elsewhere, that uh, that the Republicans had made behind the behind the scenes contacts with the Iranians uh, themselves to see if they could uh, first, I think, maybe to get the hostages out earlier to somehow assist in that early on in the campaign. But then, as the, as it got closer to the election, the concern became that uh, that Carter would get them out right before the election, and that would help him. Uh, and actually, the the term "October Surprise" was largely coined by by then vice presidential candidate George Bush, who had suggested that getting the hostages out might be Carter's October surprise, although the term has really since been applied more to the Republican behind-the-scenes efforts to block those negotiations or disrupt them. Uh, and now there's, um, you know, there is, there is an, an awful lot of evidence, which I compile in secrecy and privilege, uh, showing how this very dramatic history behind the scenes evolved from 79 through 80, and the role of people from the Central Intelligence Agency in it. Uh, and the Russian government um, was asked in 1992 by a House task force, which was looking into this issue, what they knew about it. Um, and the House task force was really trying to say nothing happened. And uh, as, as, the, uh, as their time wound down in late 92, after the this was after uh, Bill Clinton had been elected, uh, George Bush Sr. had been defeated, and it was ending, so the end of the, the Bush presidency, uh, more and more evidence started pouring into the task force showing that the Republicans had made these contacts and had interfered. Uh, still, the, the task force tried to sort of write their report as if nothing much had happened. Um, right before the report was being issued, the Russian government returned with its own classified report, which was sent to Congress, a remarkable event in itself, considering the hostility between the two countries over the years. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the Russian um, intelligence committee in, in the Duma effectively told, told the task force that the Republicans had made these contacts, that, that Soviet intelligence was aware of these meetings in Europe, and they implicated George Bush Sr., they implicated Bill Casey, the former CIA director, and other figures from the uh, CIA, in making uh, contacts behind Jimmy Carter's back. Well, it, it turned out. It turned out, by the way, that that, that document, <laughs> even as remarkable as it was, was then hidden from the American people. The the task force went ahead and wrote a released its dismissive report and hid these documents um, away in a in in a you know in a basically a warehouse situation. And I was able to access them a few years later. The late great Robert Perry. It's a shame we did not bring him back on the program after that, but unfortunately we did not. 
Luckily, I do have a couple of uh, pieces he put out for Consortium News after we had that interview with him in 2004 that I plan to read from at some length. But before I do that, I want to talk about somebody else that addressed this very same issue on this program two years later. That was Barbara Honiger. There were two books out, both entitled October Surprise. Carter National Security Advisor Gary Sick wrote one of them. Barbara Honiger, who was a senior military affairs journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School, wrote the other. In 1980, Honiger was a Reagan-Bush campaign staffer. She was later a Reagan White House policy analyst. While she was working for Reagan, she discovered information that made her believe that George Herbert Walker Bush and Bill Casey had conspired to have Iran keep the hostages. The October Surprise, as a result of my book named October Surprise, is the fact, now proven, and we'll get into how we have proved it, the fact now proven that the 1980 Reagan-Bush presidential campaign cut a secret deal with the radical Islamicist Khomeini Iran that was holding our 52 hostages, cut a deal, an arms for hostage delay deal in order to defeat President Carter. That was the October surprise. And it happened, and we can prove it. Well, it, it, it certainly generated a lot of interest, never quite caught fire. It certainly did. It wasn't sufficient to uh, deny uh, George Herbert Walker Bush the presidency when he ran in 1988. There were allegations made that the, the, the administration cut a deal. How do we now know that, that that was a fact? The most recent proof, which is the strongest proof ever, came out only two to three days before the last 2004 presidential election. And what we learned was that Bassem Abu Sharif, who was a top aide to Yasser Arafat, the head of the PLO, back in 1980, We've known for decades that Bassem Abu Sharif made a public claim back at the time of the October surprise that, the, that a very top aide to Ronald Reagan himself, close enough to Reagan to have been called Ronnie by, by Reagan's wife, that this top aide to Reagan during the 1980 presidential election campaign met with Bassem Abu Sharif to try to get Yasser Arafat to put pressure on Khomeini to delay the release of the hostages. And the, 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 uh, the hostage delay deal in exchange for arms to Iran after Reagan took the oath of office, if he were elected, was the October surprise deal. Believe it or not, j- two days before the last 204 presidential election, Bassem al-Sharif went public with an international bombshell and revealed the name of the up-to-that-point secret name of the individual who was so close to Ronald Reagan during the 1980 campaign who met with Bassem Abu Sharif to try to pressure an October surprise deal, and he named that person. Which was? That person is John Shaheen. John Shaheen was born and raised in Dixon, Illinois, with Ronald Reagan and was a close personal friend, close enough to call him Ronnie. The only other person on earth who called Ronald Reagan Ronnie was Nancy Reagan. So we now have proof of the October surprise through the finally released name of the person who met with Bassem Abu Sharif to try to cut the deal. That was just the first such meeting, but, the, but, but being the first meeting, it was the most critical one. But Barbara, how do we know for sure that Bassem Abu Sharif, can he, can he, how can he prove that that was indeed John Sheehan? Because he has the tape proving it. He taped the meeting. Oh, really? 
Yes, and Basama, what Basamabu Sharif did two days before the last election was to threaten to release the tape if there weren't a Palestinian state in the near future. Well, Barbara, it was, it was alleged that it was, was Bill Casey that cut the deal. Was Casey related to, to, uh, to this man? Absolutely. In fact, John Shaheen was so close to William Casey, who, and Casey was the chairman of Reagan's 1980 presidential campaign. Shaheen was so close to Casey that they served together in the OSS in World War II. We had Barbara Honecker return to the show one week later, at which point we asked her the curious question about why is it, given that it was a done deal about keeping the hostages till after the election, why was it they actually waited until Reagan received the oath of office on January 20th before they released the hostages? This is what she had to say. There are two uh, historical answers to that question. The first is rather comical, Um, and uh, it turns out that at the October surprise meeting, the Iranians, who don't understand the, uh, who didn't understand and still don't understand the American system, the electoral system very well, they thought that the deal was to release the hostages immediately after Reagan won the election. In other words, at the very beginning of the transition period, right in early November. Okay. And they started to do that. Okay. And the Reagan-Bush campaign stopped them and said, oh my God, no, don't give Carter any credit, wait until we're in office. And that's, in fact, what happened. As mentioned, we're working on bringing her back to the program. Maybe we'll succeed. We would love to speak to her about the recent developments in the case. But unfortunately, we can't bring Robert Perry back to the program. He did pass in 2018, but we do have these excellent articles he wrote subsequent to speaking with us from Consortium News, which I think I should quote from. The first comes from May 12, 2011, under the headline, Jimmy Carter's October Surprise Doubts. Perry said Carter said he still remains curious as to why the Iranians waited until immediately after Reagan was sworn in to allow the hostages to fly out of Tehran. Unfortunately, the former president had not listened to Barbara Honiger on Radio Parallax. The quote from Carter is rather sad. It says, The thing I do know is that after the Iranians decided to hold the hostages after the election, I did everything I could to get them extracted. The last three days I was president, I never went to bed at all. I stayed up the whole time in the Oval Office to negotiate this extremely complex arrangement. And I completed everything by 6 in the morning that I was supposed to go out of office. All the hostages were transferred to airplanes, and they were waiting in the airplanes. I knew this. They were ready to take off. And I went to the viewing stand when Reagan became president. Five minutes after he was president, the planes took off. They could have left three or four hours earlier. Ouch. Writing in 2011, Perry notes that in this past year, a 1993 congressional repudiation of the October surprise allegation crumbled amid admissions that important evidence was hidden from investigators and that internal doubts were suppressed. The collapse of these 1993 findings by a House task force left behind a troubling impression that disgruntled elements in the CIA and Israel's Likud hardliners may have teamed up with ambitious Republicans to remove a U.S. president from office. Perry notes there's no doubt that CIA old boys and Likudniks had strong motives for seeking President Carter's defeat. Inside the CIA, Carter and his CIA director, Stansfield Turner, were blamed for firing many of the freewheeling covert operatives from the Vietnam era, for ousting legendary spymaster Ted Shockley, and for failing to protect longtime U.S. allies and friends of the CIA, such as Iran's Shah and Nicaraguan dictator Anastasio Somoza. Here's something I was quite unaware of. As for Israel, Likud Prime Minister Menachem Begin was furious over Carter's high-handed actions at Camp David in 1978, 
forcing Israel to trade the occupied Sinai to Egypt for a peace deal. Begin feared that Carter would use his second term to bully Israel into accepting a Palestinian state on the West Bank that, it is, that Likud considered part of Israel's divinely granted territory. So you've got disgruntled CIA guys, you've got uh, right-wing Israelis, and you've got Republican operatives kind of converging on an idea that, well, let's see what we can do to make sure Carter does not get reelected. Said Perry, in order to buy time for Israel to change the facts on the ground by moving Jewish settlers into the West Bank, Begin felt Carter's re-election had to be prevented. A different president would also presumably give Israel a freer hand to deal with problems on its northern border with Lebanon. As for the CIA's old boy network, legendary officer Miles Copeland told me in 1990 that the CIA within the CIA, the innermost circle of powerful intelligence figures who felt they understood best the strategic needs of the U.S., believed Carter and his naive faith in American democracy represented a grave threat to the nation. Said Copeland, shaking his mane of white hair, Carter really believed in all the principles that we talk about in the West. As smart as Carter is, he did believe in mom, apple pie, and the corner drugstore, and those things that are good for America are good everywhere else. Carter, I say, was not a stupid man, Copeland said, adding that Carter had an even worse flaw. He was a principled man. Anyway, if we had a lot more time, I would detail the rest of what Robert Perry had to say in this article and cross-reference it to the wonderful Spartacus EDU website by John Simkin to talk about how these figures that emerged starting with the Ford presidency and later reconvened in the neocons, later became the Reagan administration and led right up to the Bush presidencies and the teams that both men had operating under them. Well, there's just a hell of a lot of links here of interest. I do want to note in the 1990 interview that Perry had with Copeland, he was told that the way we saw Washington at that time was the struggle was not between the left and the right, the liberals and the conservatives. It's between the utopians and the realists, the pragmatists. Carter was a utopian. He believed honestly that you must do the right thing and take your chances on the consequences. He told me that. He literally believed that. Copeland's deep southern accent spit out the words with a mixture of amazement and disgust. Perry notes that as Copeland and friends contemplated what to do regarding the hostage crisis, he reached out to other of his old CIA buddies. According to the book The Game Player, Copeland turned to ex-CIA counterintelligence chief James Angleton, the famed spy hunter brought to lunch a Mossad chap who confided that his service had identified at least a half of the hostage-holding students, even the extent of having their home addresses in Tehran. Copeland wrote, he gave me a rundown of what sort of kids they were. Most of them, he said, were just that, kids. One of the young intelligence agents assigned the task of figuring out who was who in the new Iranian post-war structure was Ari ben Manashi. Born in Iran, emigrated to Israel as a teenager, spoke fluent Farsi, and had school friends who were rising within the new revolutionary bureaucracy. Ben Menashe wrote the meeting between Miles Copeland and Israeli intelligence officers was held at a Georgetown house in Washington, D.C. The Israelis were happy to deal with any initiative but Carter's. Perry notes that there were certain enemies that Carter had within his own administration, and hence there's a possibility that the efforts to rescue the, the hostages was perhaps sabotaged. He notes that a mysterious decision by one of the pilots to turn back forced the operation to be terminated. Perry goes on to cite numerous independent sources that confirmed the matter of the October surprise, the meetings that took place. These included French intelligence figures, French investigative reporters, and Iran's ex-president, Bonnie Sauter. 
President Bonnie Sauter was very explicit about how this took place. He apparently had wanted to deal with Carter over the hostages, but was overruled by the coalition of the Ayatollah Khomeini and the Republicans slash Israelis slash intelligence figures. But Perry does note that a classified report from the Russian government regarding what its intelligence files showed that the October surprise issue stated matter-of-factly that Republicans held a series of meetings with Iranians in Europe, including one in Paris, in October of 1980. The Russian report said William Casey in 1980 met three times with representatives of the Iranian leadership. The meetings took place in Madrid and Paris. Here's the part I like the best. At the Paris meeting in October of 1980, Robert Gates at that time a staffer for the National Security Council in the administration of Jimmy Carter, and former CIA director George Bush also took part, according to the Russian report. Oh yes, regarding Robert Gates, this is the same. Robert Gates later becomes CIA director under George W. Bush and replaces Donald Rumsfeld as Secretary of Defense, who is kept on by Barack Obama as Secretary of Defense because he's doing such a great job. Anyway, we're closing up on time here. I want to note that the October surprise is more than a conspiracy theory. It's a conspiracy fact. Yes, it was attacked by Newsweek and other publications, uh, publications that Robert Perry had worked for previously. I need to quote from the piece on that. He noted that Newsweek published its own cover story attacking October surprise allegations. The article, I was told, had been ordered up by executive editor Maynard Parker who was a close associate of Henry Kissinger and was known inside Newsweek as a big admirer of prominent neocon Elliot Abrams. These articles, influential in shaping Washington's conventional wisdom, were both based on a misreading of attendance documents at a London historical conference which William Casey had gone to in July of 1980. The two publications put Casey at the conference on one key date, thus supposedly proving he could not have attended one of the Madrid meetings with Iranian emissaries. However, after the two stories appeared, follow-up interviews with conference participants, including historian Robert Dalek, conclusively showed Casey wasn't there. Dalek apparently had been looking forward to meeting Casey and was very disappointed when he didn't show up for his lecture. Veteran journalist Craig Unger, also a guest on this program, who had worked on the Newsweek cover story, said the magazine knew the Casey alibi was bogus, but still used it. Unger later toward Robert Perry, it was the most dishonest thing I have ever been through in my life in journalism. And you know, that might be a good place to end it. There's a lot to say. We've said a lot, and I don't have time for the April 9th, 2014 follow-up piece Perry did titled Reagan-Bush Ties to the Iran Hostage Crisis. We're going to have to leave it there. Let's circle back to what Morley and Pallast had to say. When Ben Barnes confesses he was personally involved and therefore an eyewitness to high treason... Well, he's got to be regarded as credible. In closing, we would like to note that we think we were right back then, and we think we're right now. And we think if you do some added research on your own, dear listener, you will concur. All right, this program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We look forward to talking to you next week. We'll see you then.